And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Hi, everyone. This is Stacy here with the Best Together podcast. I'm with Allison and our special guest, Dr. Therese Pauletko. Dr. Pauletko specializes in assessing children and adolescents with autism, visual impairments, learning disabilities, and other developmental issues. She is a former teacher of the visually impaired. She is also a former pediatric psychologist who specialized in working with individuals with autism spectrum disorder. And she also has worked at the Maryland School for the Blind alongside Dr. Lorraine Rocasano. And together they began to develop approaches to educating children with autism spectrum disorder and vision impairment. So welcome Dr. Poletko, we're so happy to have you today. Thanks, I'm looking forward to this discussion. We are too. Um, so Dr. Poletko, the first thing we always like to do kind of out of the gate is just um, have the guests share with us their story. So we'd love to start there, but I also want to just let people know why we're discussing the topic of autism and vision impairments today. And that's because as a lot of parents like us realize, Stacy and I have been in this boat, autism and vision impairment diagnoses are often discussed together. There's a lot of characteristics um, for children who are blind or visually impaired that kind of crossover into some characteristics of children on the autism spectrum disorder. And so a lot of times this comes up in conversations um, for parents and their children. So that's why we're welcoming you here today. We're really excited to delve into this topic. Um, But yes, let's first of all, just start with you telling us about you, how you entered the field of vision and psychology, and we'll go from there. Well, it's an interesting um, story for me. I, when I was eight, I saw the miracle worker. And I just was so curious about how you could get somebody that couldn't see and couldn't hear to understand the world. And that just stuck with me. So that's how I ended up in the blindness area. I uh, did my uh, undergraduate at Illinois State uh, in Normal, Illinois. And um, when I, I then moved to New England and was an itinerant teacher of the visually impaired, and I had the good fortune of um, being in a program that included Mary Morse and uh, Dr. John Morse, who was her husband and who was a psychologist. And he did psychology on an, on an uh, itinerant basis as well. He didn't keep an office. He went to where the children were. He w- did home evaluations. He was, you know, would go to wherever the children were in school. And that really impressed me as an excellent model for approaching um, doing evaluations on children um, of all ilks, you know, with vision impairments, uh, cerebral palsy, and so on and so forth. And that just stuck with me as a as a psych, you know, as uh, and pulled me into the area of psychology. And so I did my uh, graduate work in um, at Penn State, and then went on to do my internship in Chapel Hill as the Teach intern. And Teach is the um, program uh, in North Carolina that covers autism spectrum disorders. And I was in North Carolina for about uh, three weeks, and I and it hit me that three of the children um, that were on my caseload as a TBI in Maine were likely on the autism spectrum. And so it just it, it, that's just kind of how I traveled <laughs> along. It was on the med school faculty for about nine years working with children with chronic and life-threatening illness, and then went to the Maryland school, as Stacy mentioned. So that's 
that's kind of how I landed in autism land and the combination of autism and blindness. So you are a unicorn, Dr. Poletko. <laughs> it's um, it's so wonderful, really, uh, mm-hmm. for the field to have um, people like yourself who are duly certified um, mm-hmm. and trained. Um, I know for my son, um, he was considered for um, an autism spectrum disorder, and we did. He did actually receive that diagnosis, but. Um, it, it, it's difficult to find someone who who knows both um, and I definitely I want to, um, us to delve more into to what these two diagnoses kind of look like individually and side by side but um, before we do so um, can we talk about some of the language that um, parents and providers and teachers use around particular particularly autism spectrum disorder, but then also some of the characteristics of children with blindness and, and visual impairment. Um, sure. you know, are these terms accurate? Do they help when we say autistic-like behaviors? Or, no. uh, you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> are we doing a disservice to, to these? Or how can we better talk about them? Yeah, I uh, when I do my one and two day long workshops and somebody like talks about autistic, like I, I almost want to do a tantrum dance going, please, 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 please. Because, uh, and, and a couple of reasons why the autistic like comes up, people are not comfortable necessarily talking about autism and children with vision impairments. It's mm-hmm. like, nobody wants to talk about the big A. Um, and autistic like um, doesn't help. It really does blur the boundaries in terms of, are we talking about autism? And if so, let's talk about autism. Are we, are we talking about repetitive or stereotypic behaviors? If that's what we're talking about, those occur in many populations of children, children with hearing impairments, children with cerebral palsy, children with cognitive impairments, children with vision impairments. So if we're talking about just those behaviors in isolation, let's talk about those behaviors. But if it's in the context of social difficulties, communication difficulties, difficulties with transition, then we need to put that in the autism basket because that's part of a larger cluster of behaviors. Mm. Um, so I, you know, so the autistic, like the other thing that I hear is blindisms. And yes, again, yeah. those, the, that muddies the water again. So if we're talking about those stereotypic behaviors, let's talk about stereotypic or repetitive behaviors, mm. not blindisms, because again, those occur in cerebral children with cerebral palsy, with cognitive impairments, with hearing impairments, and so on and so forth. So I just think we need to clean up the language and and talk, you know, about things from the same playing field. So. Yeah, I love that. Because if you have kind of this big basket of um, blindisms or autistic-like behaviors, um, you really need to, to dig down and talk about the individual what you're seeing, what you're observing, um, as opposed right. to the grouping. Right. Yeah. Right. The other thing, the other thing that I, um, want people to kind of factor in or keep in mind is what they're attributing those behaviors to. Mm-hmm. So, um, sometimes people will talk about it being, you know, sensory deprivation, or I've heard, I mean, I've heard some things like, I mean, and this is not a lie. One staff member that I, that I, um, w- you know, was doing an intake with said, Oh, all blind children are weird. Um, and so they were labeling those behaviors as, you know, kind of weird blind behaviors. Or I had a, a grandmother who was the custodial grandparent say that her grandson was just withholding it for, he was just a regular teenager. He was withholding information because during the day he might say two to three words like hungry or thirsty, 
But at night he would rattle off like a whole dialogue. Well, they weren't his words. He was repeating the arguments that his parents were having during the day at Uh. night when it was quiet. And they weren't his words. They were the parents' dialogue that he had committed to memory. Wow. But but they were discounted. They were saying, well, he's just he's just withholding language as opposed to no, he's got autism and he's just engaging in in echolalia. Yeah. So um, for me, um, you know, for my son, Finn, he's four Uh um, and they've you know, I've had multiple referrals to look at autism as a potential diagnosis for him as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's been tested a couple of times and it's always come out pretty inconclusive. And then recently his um, school wanted to look at it again. And so I remember filling out this long lengthy questionnaire about his behaviors and language and all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of questions on there. Like, does he make eye contact? Well, he's totally blind. No, he does not make eye contact, but that's, that's because he can't see. Um, so how difficult is it if it is difficult to determine you know to purse these things out and see what's blindness what's autism what's not either of those what's both you know how how do you do that Um, and for us parents you know um, I think it becomes a question of and we'll get into this but you know what's the benefit to a diagnosis versus the disadvantage to a diagnosis for um, autism. Because I also in those same meetings, you know, I felt like a lot of the professionals on the call were skirting around and scared to say the word autism to me. And I finally said, you can say autism. I'm not scared of it. Uh, If that's what my son has, then it doesn't change who he is. Um, But, you know, what's the advantage to us really digging deep to figure that out? Okay. So let's try to take those one at a time. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like a, a day lecture. So <laughs> let's start, let's start with, um, and I do one and two day long workshops. So we're going to compartmentalize as much as we can and get through as much as we can in this hour and a half or so that we've got. Um, but in terms of the, the, the diagnostic um, evaluation tools that people are using, you're absolutely right. There's things like eye contact on it or you know, reading body language. Well, you can't do that with a child with a vision impairment. So what I ask people to do is the following. I say, substitute orients body in the direction of the speaker because that's basically what eye contact is doing or quiets the body in response to and response to the person so that, you know, that they're paying attention to the language, because if you were speaking to a child and there's absolutely no reaction, no response, no quieting of the body, no curiosity about that, then that would suggest that there's something difficult, you know, in terms of processing the spoken word. Right. And that's different you know, in terms of body reaction. And that's some of the stuff that um, that Stella Chess even talked about with rubella um, children years ago is that, you know, there's they're just different. They don't respond to the language that that's spoken. Where children that are just blind from ROP or stuff will respond to the spoken word. They're curious, you know, but to, they'll respond to carefully timed overtures and so on and so forth. So you know, those are the kinds of things that need to be um, taken into account um, on the, on those. And we, and we don't have any good evaluation tools for diagnosing autism in the child with a vision impairment. They're just that was going to be my next question, because in early intervention and as a former TVI, I'm sure, you know, yep. there are specific evaluations and assessment that take into account blindness when we're looking at overall development. So I was going to ask, right. is there such a 
evaluation Beach? for autism. No, ma'am. No. You and need to create part- it. That's for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's also no criteria, diagnostic criteria that are consistent yeah. um, in terms of, you know, giving a diagnosis. There's the lack of measures. There's not a, a, a biological measure for autism in general. So it's not like you can do blood work or brain scans and say, oh yeah, that's autism. Um, there's a lack of information in terms of the incidence. Now the CDC um, suggested, and this was within the last four to six years or so, that it could be as many um, as 50% of children with vision impairments may be on the autism spectrum. Wow. Um, but again, and there are some can, eye conditions that it's at, the children are at greater risk. Um, ONH is one of them because it's a brain-based um, visual impairment, but children with anophthalmia, children with uh, albinism, children with labor's congenital amaurosis, children with Cornelia DeLang syndrome. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Uh, the rubella, kids post-rubella. So there's, like I said, there's at least um, 10. Alpert syndrome is another one um, that was a relatively new one. Waggers, um, 60% of the children with Waggers are likely on the autism spectrum. And that was something that NIH had looked at. So there, is a, there are subgroups of children with, you know, within those eye conditions where um, autism occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's research-based. It's not just my saying, oh, I think they are. Um, that's, those are, that's literature that I've actually, um, researched and things. So anyway, and Dr. Poletko, um, I do, before you get into more of Allison's question and especially sure. the why, cause, um, right. talking about diagnostic tools. So yep. I recall, um, I think Nathaniel was two, maybe that's uh-huh. when they give out, um, the M chat in the pediatrician's office. Right. Um, if a parent has a kiddo with a known vision impairment, Right. What should they do with that M chat when it's handed to them? I, I, again, I would just, you know, advise some caution in terms of using it because it's not, it's not geared for children with vision impairments. Right. So. And so um, what are some other, I know it's the M chat. There's something else that I feel like they, um, psychologists use later on. Um, well, the, the ADIR is one, but that's a largely interview based um, mm. I will sometimes use the autism spectrum rating scales, which goes from two to five years of age. And I will tag it, uh, you know, I'll put a note on it saying any eye contact related thing, you substitute this. Mm-hmm. And then I still take it with a grain of salt um, because it needs to be in conjunction with other things like the Vineland adaptive behavior scales and, and a good clinical interview that's looking at how the children are dealing with transitions, how the children are playing with, with toys. Are they effective in terms of their playing with toys? You know, are they socially curious? Are they responding to social interactions and stuff? So, Mm -hmm. um, so it's always in, in the context of a larger clinical interview. The other thing I do when I'm doing my evaluations is I ask for video clips Mm -hmm. and I ask for video clips, um, because I'm going to see a child either in a clinic setting or, you know, for a particular period of time in their school, but it's still not giving me a bigger picture. I want to see also what they're doing, you know, at home in terms of how they're playing in a more comfortable environment or in one that they have more control over. So I love to get video clips on, on children that I'm evaluating because it gives me a bigger picture. That's such a good point. And like you said, um, with autism being so subjective, I struggled with that just because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Nathaniel has several diagnoses, um, Mm -hmm. of which we could point to there's a, a gene or you observe the eye and you see 
the optic nerves, you know, mm -hmm. are pale or, mm -hmm. um, but to have something where, again, you, you can't point to one, um, like, yep, it's definitive. Um, yeah. That was a struggle. So why, why should we be going down this path as parents? You know, like our kids mm -hmm. already have a diagnosis. It's, you know, like Allison pointed out, I, thankfully I too wasn't scared of the A word, but mm -hmm. you know, some parents are, it comes mm -hmm. with, um, emotions and it's sure. one other diagnosis you know for for people in our in our shoes so Absolutely. why why even go down down this path um i for a couple of reasons one is it really um kind of commands or orients how you're going to work with a child with a vision impairment again as a former tbi you know i was um bombarding the children with multi-sensory simultaneous stimulation. So we're giving them language We're you know, they want to narrate things. You want to have them, you know, have, have a lot of tactual um, experience. You want them to have olfactory experiences and stuff where with children with spectrum disorders, you could push whether they have a vision impairment or not, that multi-sensory multi simultaneous presentation of information could push a kid off the cliff. Mm. Um, and for children with vision impairments, they lack the, the anticipation or the ability to anticipate what's coming at them unless we're controlling and gauging the things. The other thing is the narration. What we want to do with children with autism spectrum disorders is we want to control the language that we're using. We don't want to give, you know, narrate absolutely every single thing. We might use two or three words like, you know, lift up or, you know, put in or, you know, block you know, not like, oh, here, let me show you the block and I'm, we're going to turn it over. We're going to do this. It's like the Charlie Brown teacher talking head to a child that has a vision impairment and autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really, it changes the whole way that we think about the children. We're going to control the language. We're going to control the other stimuli. I might layer what I'm doing with the child. So I might show and say, just looking and literally just help the, facilitate the child's exploring a particular thing just looking. And then I might um, label the what it is. And then I might label what we're doing with the, the particular object. But that that's controlling and that's helping organize and direct their attention to what I want them to pay attention to. I don't assume that a child knows what to do with their hands unless I show them. So what we see with a lot of children with spectrum disorders is they engage in repetitive behaviors. So one little guy that I worked with, um, who's probably now in his late twenties, I think, but he flicked and he flicked everything. As a matter of fact, his first birthday, there was a video clip and he was flicking the birthday card. He had anophthalmia, had no vision and he's flicking. So what did he do when they sent me video clips? He flicked his bread. He flicked the blues clues ear on his pillow. He flicked, you know, um, you know, anything that he got in his hands. That's what he knew to do with his hands but he had no clue what else to do with them or how to approach materials. And so it was really incumbent on me to layer the things and to help move his hands so that he knew, oh, there are other ways to engage with materials. And in fact, materials have a purpose and a function because otherwise the children only apply what they know what to do. And that in his case was flick. So oh, yeah. anyway. Did that answer that question? I think I went down yeah, a rabbit hole. No, oh, I think you may have covered all my questions. Of course, oh, I could have more. <laughs> so are there any sort of early warning signs? I mean, we work primarily with birth to three, birth to five, yeah. um, sure. that parents 
could be looking for? Um, does a child's age play into this? Is it better to wait until they're older to look at diagnosing autism if it's suspected? Or what are your thoughts on that? I, um, I think caution in terms of rushing to diagnosis is important because as I mentioned, if it, I don't assume a child knows what to do with their hands unless I've taught them deliberately. So I want to I want to assume a certain degree of intervention, and I and I want the invention the intervention to be intensive in terms of, you know, organizing play, um, engaging in um, social interactions, you know, developing relationships and things with the children, because if we're not doing those, if we're not operating from the base of being a trustworthy intervener, then the children can look like they have autism because people haven't met them on their playing field and kind of moved with it. Um, so I think that's, that's important. That said, you know, I think it's important that, you know, we think about if in fact, we anticipate that they may be on the autism spectrum, we can intervene as if they were on the autism spectrum. Um, just to kind of talk a little bit about some of the symptoms. Um, in 1993, there was a researcher whose name was Jansen, and he said that 12, and this is more classic autism, so 12 to 30 month olds, um, he was distinguishing uh, children with ROP from uh, with autism without uh, or without autism that uh, he was finding that it was an absence or deviance in terms of babbling, delayed or deviant language development. So they uh, they tended to be introverted. There was a lot of echolalia versus communicative intent and the caution about echolalia. We all went through a period of echolalia, but it's the protracted amount that um, uh, echolalia occurs in that is the kind of key factor because a little bit of echolalia and then moving on, it's where children are developing language and acquiring language that we, they go through that particular period. But if it's longer than what we anticipate, even for a child with a vision impairment, then we need to be thinking about a spec possible spectrum disorder. In his case, he also found deviant forms of body contact. So tending to kind of ward off social contact, appearing stiff, um, seldom reciprocal in terms of interactions, object use, they were fixated on the same stimulus qualities um, or isolated details. They were sensory seeking, functional play might be banging or some other repetitive action. Like I said, in, in this other little guy's case, it was flicking, um, prolonged periods of self-stimulation. Um, Parr uh, in his work in, um, in Britain uh, found that there, were, it, there was again a breakdown in social and communication or repetitive behaviors and restricted interests. Um, and that it, and it's related to underconnectivity in terms of the brain, um, and that's not related to sensory deprivation. It goes to the the brain basis to for autism spectrum disorders. Um, I actually um, had um, some uh, parent anecdotes um, from a parent group, and they said that uh, in their case, it was a child with albinism. Um, they struggled with the diagnosis, but at 18 to 24 months, they saw their children having difficulty with adapting to change, massive meltdowns, not noticing any social interest to, with other children, constantly on the move, didn't stay still, walking on toes, um, fascinated with things that rolled or you know, just playing with the wheels on the car, um, making noises, uh, grinding their teeth, Another parent had a lack of babbling, sensory difficulties, um, slightly delayed motor skills, early fascination or intense fascination with letters and numbers. I had another guy that was fascinated with um, shredding machines, you know, shredders. So things that were mechanical and that were had push buttons and stuff. So some repetitive things around that. I had another uh, uh, child love to play like the taste of words. 
So it got really into that, but it was the fixation on words, not the social interaction that came out of words and, and sharing language. So um, another child that just stood and rocked repetitively. Um, so, but again, in the cluster of right. social communication and repetitive behaviors, not just the rocking by itself. So one other question, sure. <laughs> maybe I asked this before, but um, so I understand the advantages to if you're pursuing a diagnosis or a suspected diagnosis of autism yeah. in addition to blindness or visual impairment. Right. Are there disadvantages if, if a child might be misdiagnosed as autistic um, and in fact they're not, maybe they're diagnosed too early? Um, in other words, is, is there a disadvantage to treating a child and, and coming to them with an approach that assumes they are autistic when maybe they're not? It's a good question. I, I don't know that anybody's done any particular research on it, um, which would be, you know, the question of is, is early diagnosis, but I would not want people just to under expect of a child with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Um, I can tell you, um, Allison, that as kids get older, I often use strategies that are geared for children with, with autism spectrum disorders, with children with vision impairments, um, because the strategies like social stories, like um, social um, skills development, like uh, what's something called social behavior mapping, which is some of this work is from Carol Gray, the social stories part, and the um, social thinking curriculum that goes with Michelle Garcia Winner, can be really powerful in demystifying the social interaction information because children with vision impairments are missing all of that information, you know, from that they, that kids learn from observation um, and even social context. So I'll give you just a, for instance, social behavior mapping talks about expected and unexpected behaviors in various social contexts. So it might be, you know, how to work with a partner, um, you know, um, how to, um, you know, play a game, how to be a good loser. Um, those kinds of things. And so it, I think children with vision impairments miss a lot of that information. So I think those kinds of strategies are really powerful and can be really helpful for children with vision impairments because it demystifies that social world. Yeah, that so, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's helpful. So I just, I think it's really, I just think it, it concretizes things that otherwise children with vision impairments may otherwise miss. Right. I'm curious too, um, and this is sort of coming from my personal experience uh, with my son. Um, so he didn't have a typical um, infancy or toddlerhood. It was uh -huh. sort of hijacked with medical intervention and constant yeah. clinic appointments and um, being um, immunocompromised. So I didn't expose him to a lot of sensory um, information. Sure. Um, just out of fear at that point, but, um, you know, how, how far do you go in, um, as a parent, I was doing this, maybe providers do as well, but almost excusing the behavior or, um, sort of, you know, what you're seeing being like, well, he, you know, if he had had a typical infancy, mm -hmm. maybe he would be on track or, mm -hmm. you know, are those sort of the things that could be leading to, um, to even an autism diagnosis or um, I think I remember reading, you know, on uh, some of your articles online that um, 
you know, the, the autism would have been present regardless. Like that's, right. it really right. is brain-based, but I think it's, it's hard as a parent to be like, well, if I had just done this differently, right. or if, if he just hadn't had the medical intervention. Um, right. But I, I think, um, Stacey, one thing, cause I do the same, I'm doing evaluations on three to five-year-olds that don't have vision impairments. And the question of autism comes up, well, we've been in COVID land for two and a half years now. Right. And so what I will do is I will put the caveat in there saying what we can't rule out is the contribution of COVID because the children have not been in daycares, have not been in preschools, have not had contact with peer, you know, have the opportunities to engage with peers. And so I think in your son's case, it's an absolutely legitimate concern. But what we want to do is we want to intervene now you know, using the autism related kinds of strategies, assuming that, it, you know, and, and I think I mentioned this earlier, that sometimes it, <clears throat> it behooves us to go ahead and approach them as if they're on the autism spectrum, because some of those are just right. good teaching strategies, controlling the language, controlling the presentation, you know, or kind of choreographing the way we present information to the kids, being a reliable caregiver or reliable teacher, mm -hmm. um, because that's what's important. We want to build out of the uh, the context of a, of, of a trustworthy relationship. Um, so, and I'll, I'll give you just a, another, for instance, I had a little gal that, um, was, you know, she ended up with a, an autism diagnosis. She was an extremely low birth weight preemie, no language. And I watched, um, somebody do hand over hand with her and she's just sobbing, absolutely sobbing. And um, I, I was doing my evaluation and I started with just putting her on the floor between my legs and just starting with rockabye baby and not making any demands, not touching her hands because clearly in her case, she had hand, she had tra a traumatic, you know, hand engagement because this person was doing hand over hand while she's just beside herself sobbing. And um, I just, I made no demands on her. I just wanted to be reliable and within two rounds of rock of my baby, she crawled in my lap Aww. and she, um, she let me rock her doing rock of my baby. And then I stopped and I said, music finished, put her down on the floor. And I, we had a, like a, a, um, sick tray over her lap and I took a call bell and I put it down and she immediately winged, you know, she put her hands underneath her armpits cause she was not going to let me touch her hands. And I wasn't going there. And I slid my arm underneath her hand, under my arm underneath her armpit. And I rang the call bell twice, just slowly and waited and rang the call bell twice and waited. And then I went back to Rockabye Baby. And we did that three times. And by the third time, she slid her hand down my arm and she hit and used my hand as the switch for the call bell. Oh, that's great. But it was like, oh, when she came in, her mother said, and she's not feeling well today. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but anyway, we managed to choreograph and get into a trustworthy relationship. And she didn't know me from the, from Adam, mm -hmm. but it's like, we have to pace and we have to meet the children on their playing field and then move with them, not, not expect them to join me on my field. It's not my agenda. It's her comfort. Right. So anyway. Um, okay. My Sorry. next question. <laughs> no, no, I love this. I could honestly talk to you all day. I'm just fascinated uh, by this topic. But let's say um, for our listeners um, sure. and parents out there who have a child who's already diagnosed with both, uh -huh. 
blindness yeah. and vision impairment and autism. Yeah. What happens next? Does this immediately mean ABA therapy? Are there other options? What do they do now? I, I, different states have different kind of requirements or strategies or ways that they're approaching um, autism. I know that ABA, you know, has a, has a track record in terms of intervening. But I also um, have approached children with vision impairments and spectrum disorders using the structured teaching approach, which is what my orientation was um, coming out of the out of North Carolina. Um, and it's actually um, Allison uh, simpatico with uh, strategies that are used with deafblind children. And I think about autism spectrum disorders and vision impairment as a social communication disability, much like you know we think about. Uh, deaf blindness, you know, that we have right. to map the world in a way that's meaningful and accessible. And so uh, the way I lay things out should be a, the children with vision impairments should be able to understand without understanding language necessarily, how to, you know, how to understand the tasks that I'm presenting in front of them. Um, and whether they're children with low vision or, or children that are totally blind, you know, the, the layout should communicate a certain uh, um, instruction. Um, using calendar systems and schedules and, like I said, social stories and things like that, you know, are part of the autism thing, but it's not necessarily straight ABA. Now, what I love about, about ABA is people are collecting data and they're looking at the efficacy of, of the strategy or the, of the, the child's progress. So I think that's fabulous. Um, part of it. But I also think that we want to work from a relationship based um, and a developmental base um, in terms of intervening. Um, and you yeah. called it a structured teaching structured approach. Teaching approach. Uh -huh. Is that something that people are doing around the country? Is that a, you know, well, recognized term? Like if I'm say, I want, I want structured teaching for my uh -huh. son, can I uh -huh. Google it and find someone in it Tennessee? Should, it that's should doing be able it. the other thing, okay. um, you know, and I'd have to Google and see how it's popping up now, but structured teaching came out of the teach program, which is T E A C C H because I think it's techniques and educational approaches for children with communication handicaps. Okay. And no. on that, um, I'm so glad you asked that, Allison. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious too, though, when we're talking about communication handicaps, mm -hmm. um, why not, why autism and why not a, you know, a communication disorder mm -hmm. uh, that a, a speech and language pathologist would be treating? Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, um, autism is a communication disorder. Mm -hmm. um, it's a social communication disorder. So it's got the social component as well as the language. And so what we're seeing, and you know, and it kind of goes back to <clears throat> oftentimes, you know, like years ago, uh, children were labeled as behavior problems when in fact it was a breakdown in communication. Right. What they were understanding or not understanding or, you know, a schedule changed and they would have a meltdown. Well, it wasn't that they were a behavior problem. It was the schedule changed and people didn't understand that they needed to front load or alert the children to the fact that the schedule changed because the children were dependent on the things to happen in a certain sequence. Mm -hmm. So, um, and speech pathologists, I have speech pathologists that are working with the child with an autism spectrum disorder and a vision impairment. Um, so they, it's not an exclusive either or, and they may right. be working with them on the, on the social pragmatic aspect of the communication breakdown. So okay. working on with social skills development and so on and so forth, or just even concepts. I mean, I, 
a little guy that I saw within the last few weeks as a five-year-old was largely nonverbal, had a lot of echolalia. And I just thought that the speech pathologist would be a great one just to kind of do language development because it's like, we could work on size, we could work on concepts, we can work on all kinds of things with him because he needs language and needs hands-on. And then the speech pathology session, don't work on articulation, work on language development. Um, and he would, and it would be so much fun to like, you know, I had one speech pathologist that worked with pumpkins and she had different sizes of pumpkins and they, they, you know, cut the pumpkins and they did all kinds of pumpkin nests, you know, so he got a sense of pumpkins, but there were also concepts of, of size and texture and those kinds of things that came out of gooey, you know, seeds that came out of the pumpkin. So yeah, there's a, right. there's a lot that, that speech and language pathologists can do. I'm so um, glad you mentioned the behavior part because, um, those were some of the early signs, um, I guess, for my son. Um, you know, there are some tantruming. Sometimes, you know, there would be even like head banging or, um, you know, self-injurious behaviors. And that's right. when it's like, okay, we we have to intervene because this um, could be harmful yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, or, you know, sometimes in kiddos, there's behaviors that might be seen as aggressive. But, um, mm -hmm. and my, my son did participate in ABA therapy and uh -huh. um, it, it helped me to understand, um, to really try to analyze more, like, where are these behaviors coming from? You know, what, right. what was the antecedent to this? Um, mm -hmm. And so often it really was, uh, you know, lack of, his lack of ability to communicate. Sure. And once, once we did um, provide him with some phrases and things to use and mm -hmm. his communication increased, thankfully those behaviors, you yeah. know, really um decreased, yeah. really decreased um right. so yeah i just was able to see firsthand um that you know how how communication was playing into that and right. i do hate that so often you know people think autism and do think some of those like symptoms mm -hmm. um whereas and maybe not thinking about the the cause of that or the source sure. yeah I, th I think the other thing in terms of um and this goes also to uh, the repetitive behaviors that children engage in so uh, people will say well you know they're they're doing that self-stimulatory behavior it's like but why are they doing it? You know, is it, they don't know what to do with their hands. Is it that there's been a change in routine and that's self-soothing and this it's decreasing the stress load. So, um, is it that their battery is now, um, completely drained and, and they need to kind of self-soothe or regroup or reorganize, um, because they've had multiple stimuli, you know, they're like their bucket, the rain bucket is full, so they can't process another thing. So they're engaging in that self-soothing behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think whether it's a, an aggressive behavior, acting out behavior, or a repetitive self-stimulatory behavior, we have to look at, at why those are occurring and, and how to intervene, um, appropriately so that those decrease, not treating them as a behavior issue, but treating them as a communication, as a not understanding of the world, you know, as a too many changes or other things that may be contributing to that. Yes. Um, for parents, how, um, how can we be better at looking at the why? And I'll say too that, so I have two, um, typically developing kiddos older uh -huh. than my, my youngest son. Uh -huh. And once I learned some of these strategies, which I'm not an expert at it, but it sure. was eye-opening, like I can apply this to all of my children. Like this yep. is so helpful to just understand, um, you know, why, why certain behaviors are happening. Um, and, and realizing kind of what I was doing, 
unintentionally to reinforce behaviors um, right. when, because we're really, we're doing that all day, every day as parents. So right. um, it, in my opinion, it does help to, it only helps us to know, you know, how, what we're doing uh, will affect the kiddos. But um, right. yeah, so maybe parents that haven't gotten connected with um, any type of specific intervention um, mm -hmm. related to autism or possible autism, or even once they have, like, are there strategies parents can be doing um, to, to help out? Well, I think, like I mentioned, I think if people can look at the, the why things are happening when they're happening. So yeah. is it that there's been, um, and I'll, let's start with the sensory sensitivities piece. So children with spectrum disorders or other kind of neurodevelopmental challenges that many of the children with vision impairments, because the population of children with vision impairments is a really complicated group right now, mm -hmm. where, you know, back in the 50s, it would be, you know, kind of more just blindness because of the prematurity issue and the, the retinopathy of prematurity. There weren't a lot of other complicated um, uh, issues necessarily. So anyway, long and short. So if we start with the sensory sensitivities, um, are we controlling the auditory input, you know, like, so that we're, that we're not bombarding the children or we're, or we're paying attention to things like the blowers and the fans and the, and the amount of language that, that we're bombarding them with. If we decrease and control that, then they have more access to language or if we're supplementing it, you know, with tactual supports, um, then they can pay attention to those kinds of things. That may be, you know, that may be one thing. Um, changes in routine. Are we alerting to the, the children to changes in routine? Or are, you know, why now did this child just have a major meltdown? Well, they expected to go one way and we went another way. Or, you know, they expected to brush their teeth first and then get a story, not have the story and then brush their teeth. Um, so paying attention to the, the breakdowns in, you know, in routines, you know, may be helpful. Those are some some kind of fairly typical things, um, yeah. or or being moved too quickly, not allowing them to necessarily have the time to process what what it is we're asking. So really, mm. the processing time, you know, can be a real issue. Um, so giving them, you know, some kind of tangible um, system. The other thing I'll just mention this, Stacy, is on the Texas School for the Blind website. There's um, I, I think one of the articles is just called Autism and the Vision uh, Visually Impaired Child. And um, there are, there's a list of, um, let's see, how have I got this? Um, problems with socialization, like uh, it's an iceberg model. Mm -hmm. So the kind of what's on the surface and why might be, it might be occurring. So on the surface, you might see that the child's having difficulties with reciprocal inter interactions and they're treating others as objects and they're not necessarily interested in peers. But the reason why is they're having problems shifting attention or they may not be able to process social information effectively or difficulty processing complex stimuli, you know, being able to tease out the figure from the ground. Um, so the Charlie Brown teacher talking head, but there's a fan going and they can't pay attention to the language that's there um, or the multi-sensory. And then the implications for parents and educators is under each of those sections. So the problems in language, um, uh, problems in communication, um, narrow focused interests and stuff like that are hypersensitive, hyposensitive systems. Yes, so. I know the article you're referring to, and we'll um, we'll put that in the show notes too, so people okay. can easily access that because yeah. it is. I love reading through that, and um, yeah. and you're right. That gets exactly to what I was um, you yeah. know asking about, and that 
what what little bit are we seeing sure. you know and w what might be underlying that the the iceberg right. under the water so right. that's so well, helpful the other the other thing and i'll just mention there's a um and i don't know that it's on the web any longer um teresa bolick who is a psychologist who passed away within the last five years um wrote a lot about asperger's mm -hmm. and she used what's called the house of human development model and um i think it's probably in a podcast somewhere online because i think i did it for julia bowman but okay. it's the house of human development, um, basically that we want to look at the basement and the sub-basement levels because they need to be substantially supported. And what those are is the sensory and the regulata regulatory um, areas. So we want to pay attention to those sensory sensitivities that children with spectrum disorders have, the olfactory, the sound, the tactual, um, the texture, oral texture, you know, foods and things like that. It can be, uh, you know, struggles for children. And then the regulatory part of it, the emotional regulation. And so how do we support both of those levels in order to, because we can't even think about communication and social and academic things until we've got the basement and the sub-basement supported. Right. Like the hierarchy of needs. Right. And, and we tend, yep. And we tend to look at the roof, which is the behaviors on the outside. Yeah. Um, as opposed to what's, what are those developmental and the sensory motors is where, you know, kids start from is the sensory mm -hmm. motor periods and development. So we really need to support the, and address the sensory sensitivities that children have so that they can process the language, which is a higher order and more complicated feature. So. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Dr. Poletko, um, since we can't clone you and replicate you for all the <laughs> states and cities and uh, parents and children that uh, would benefit from someone duly certified. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we, we've talked, you know, quite a bit about the parents, but how do we support providers that, you know, might be working with our sons or, you know, clients we serve, um, mm -hmm. you know, that in our experience, they want to do so well by these kiddos, but how do we get the right information in their hands? Well, I think one thing is to, to try to look at how to collaborate with the folks that are dealing with children with autism spectrum disorders. And I will tell you two things. One is that we as a vision field have a tremendous amount of information that would be very helpful for the folks with dealing with autism spectrum disorders. One of which is um, activities of daily living and orientation and mobility, travel skills, and those kinds of things. Because the, the autism population needs those kinds of tips. Um, because their kids are struggling with activities of daily living and organizing those kinds of things. The other thing, and I did a talk for the TEACH program years ago, like 15 or more years ago, and I, I talked about autism in the population of kids with vision impairments and how I took the structured teaching approach and modified it and stuff. And they were flabbergasted, you know, that I was talking about things like contrast and simplifying the visual environment. It was like, that's what we do and that's what they needed so it was more of them came up to me after and said wow that could use that with my kids the other thing um to do is when folks with uh, that are dealing with children with autism say but my strategies are visual we can say but we need to substitute concrete tactual mm -hmm. so that we can use the same strategies or we look again to the deafblind programming kinds of approaches, those calendar systems and things like that as a way of supplementing and supporting what folks are doing with children with, with autism. It's concrete tactual um, as, 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 as opposed to just visual and again, right. controlling the language and things. So I think, you know, we have to look for ways to kind of, you know, join on the same playing field and support each other doing it.
Um, Absolutely. Um, and I imagine to some providers that might sound like rocket science, like taking something that they're probably so familiar with and, you know, do mm -hmm. every day and then right. making it concrete and tactual. Right. Is it overly complicated to do? I don't, I don't personally think so. I, you know, cause I think as teachers of the visually impaired, we're, um, you know, looking for, you know, ways to make things concrete. Now, I'm not talking about brailing everything because not every child right. is going to be a braille reader, but the, the little guy that I worked with a few weeks ago, you know, I started with just nesting bowls. You know, we often use nesting cups and things like that, but I laid things out and I showed him, first of all, I just introduced the materials um, and, and, and let him explore it. And then I demonstrated matching one lid to one bowl. Well, he, and he's a really, I, I think he's a really bright little guy that um, people just looked at the fact that he was echolalic and, and not giving him much credit and he has a lot of skills, but I demonstrated things, you know, very systematically left to right. Um, and I set every system up using kind of the structured teaching approach, which is a, a work system approach. It's a left to right top down um, sequence or layout and um, it made sense to him. So I think if we look for, you know, and I think the vision field tends to, to be in a silo sometimes that we don't necessarily look to other groups for information um, or ways to collaborate on things. Um, so, and I, and I'll kind of leave it at that. The, I'll just mention um, one um, book that might be, or one cluster of books that might be helpful in terms of laying out materials and thinking kind of tactually. And that's called tasksgalore.com. Hmm. And it, it's visual, but the layout in terms of how to match things and map things, um, it, you know, I think we can convert some of those things, but there's like a preschool and primary. And again, it's a lot of visual materials, but for children with low vision, um, it would work pretty well. It's not a curriculum. It's a model for setting up activities. Um, and it's based on the structured teaching approach. And the folks that develop those books are people that I trained with. Um, so I'm just throwing those Wonderful. at both Oh, I've never heard of that. I'm yeah. always looking for new resources. So. Yeah, so that's one. And then the other things that I mentioned are like Michelle Garcia Winner's book uh, materials, and she's the socialthinking.com lady. Um, but uh, her social behavior mapping um, things is what, that's just one example of some of her materials, but she does um, a lot with, you know, I have idea and she also has um, comic um, I can't think of superheroes, um, super flex. She's got a whole curriculum in terms of thinking flexibly and things like that. Um, and again, it's visual, but I think we can, you know, work to modify it so that it's functional for our kids. Um, so. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. I'm sitting here bookmarking <laughs> as you're talking. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. Yay. Yeah, anyway. yeah. And again, I don't have all the answers. I think, you know, people need to, they, there are some articles um, out on the use of the picture exchange system. You know, I think if, if we can push for more interventions that people are trying to document or things that people try, I think that's the, some of the biggest gaps is people may be doing things in, in their own silos and not necessarily putting it out there. So I have seen some articles on PECs with kids with vision impairments, 
Um, but, but not a lot else. Um, I think somebody might've done some of the social thinking material or curriculum with some kids with vision impairments, but I know I re reference the social behavior mapping on a pretty regular basis and social thinking kinds of things, um, and social stories, um, uh, because that can demystify some of the, the reasons why, what it is, social stories are not to direct behavior is to educate children about what they're missing in the social realm. Mm. Oh, people need to really be cautious. It's not like I will do such and such. It's like, I'm going to try to do this or that um, so that there's okay. some flexible language built in there, but it's not a behavior control system for right. sure. Okay. That makes me think too, um, you know, in, in talking about this topic, you know, we are definitely coming at it from the perspective of the parent and then uh, yourself as a provider, um, very experienced, knowledgeable provider. Um, but, you know, we ourselves are not people with um, autism or vision impairment. Um, mm -hmm. I would love to, at some point, you know, speak to someone from that perspective just mm -hmm. to, um, yeah, get their take. But, you know, when, when a child is so young, I mean, it really does come down to the parents and providers when sure. they can't yet self-advocate or right. very effectively. So, um, well, well, and I think that uh, if there's a way to kind of think about it, it's choreograph choreographing the presentation of an activity, mm -hmm. you know, as a parent, you know, you're going to go in and you're going to alert your child to the fact that you're entering the room. And then you're going to say, I'm going to touch you in these ways. So, you know, the kind of layering that we're, that we're doing, you know, as a way of kind of, you know, setting up routines and so on and so forth is really what's going to be important. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, if it was the beginning of bath time, it may be, you know, you're undressing, you're presenting a washcloth. And so thinking about the sequences and following the same sequence so that the child gets a sense of what the routine is. Um, that they can then follow that and that you might set up a calendar system at some point based on the materials that are used because we want to use the materials as a way of jumpstarting the activity or the sequence in the activity. Right. And this conversation too has um, made me think more about um, j just access in general. And so, you know, yeah. from the standpoint of my son's vision diagnosis, uh -huh. we do think about changing access. Access. You know, he has um, a teacher of, of students of visual impairment, mm -hmm. not to correct his vision, but to give him access to his world around him yeah. and access to, you know, materials and language and words to help him yeah. um, progress as well. Right. And to be honest, before our conversation, I didn't even think of, you know, his autism diagnosis from that realm. You know, sometimes it uh -huh. seems I lump it in with some of his other medical diagnoses as something to right. fix or something to, right. you know, other things that have required, you know, specific medical intervention to to reverse. And mm -hmm. um, but really, it's just I can think of it, I believe, you know, more in terms of, you know, how do we in light of autism, right. what can we do, like you say, to choreograph, to help him access, right. again, his surroundings? Yeah. Um, it, it seems much less scary to me in that way as well. Yeah. But Well, and I think that's why, you know, I feel like autism almost needs to drive the bus because we're thinking about how are we going to support your son engaging with his peers? How are we going to support him engaging with his teacher? Does he know that he needs to go up to his teacher in order to get, because I saw one little guy years ago sitting saying, I need help, you know, and he's sitting across the room, you know, and he's not one, he's not raising his hand. He didn't know to raise his hand. He has no vision. 
Two, he's got a very quiet voice. Three, he didn't know that the teacher couldn't see him. Four, he didn't know that he could in fact get up and go to the teacher. So there's all these things that impact his ability to access social interaction and get assistance. Um, and that's all, you know, it was all part of his spectrum disorder mm -hmm. uh, in addition to his vision impairment. So the, the social component, the communication component and the language development, the sensory load that the environment, some of the environments are, are crazy with sensory loads. And those are competing, particularly for children that have difficulty processing the language signal. So the words sound like the Charlie Brown teacher talking head to start with. And then you've got a blower that may make more sense to the children because it's a consistent sound. So how do we look at the, the load that's competing for language when we have a language vulnerable child? Right. So, so all of those things need to be kind of taken into account. And then the difficulties with change. So, you know, if in fact there's a change in routine and the child hasn't been told it's a zigger zagger day and we're throwing half the schedule out the window, I can't take any credit. That's a Teresa Bullock-ism. <laughs> I love that. Zigger <laughs> zaggers. And we would have lightning bolts or something like that. But, you know, but writing a social story about what's a zigger zagger. Um, so that the kids, you know, have a sense of, well, we've just thrown the whole schedule out the window, or even, you know, I would do, we get a glance calendars and have parents put up snow, snow, we have snow days in New England. I don't know about you in Tennessee, but you know, sometimes when there's a snow day, there's no school. And so what does that mean? They follow a whole different schedule because it's a snow day. Um, so, you know, alerting the child, if they're always going to their, their refrigerator to look at what, what is it a weekend day or is it a, you know, a school day? And then when it's not a school day, but it should be a school day, what do you do? So mm -hmm. it's, it's access that way. And also alerting them to this fact that it's, we know that there's a set, certain schedule that we follow um, and structure. I can't emphasize structure enough for children. And again, this is a, something from teach, but they uh, work is play because it's structured. And play is work because it's unstructured, open-ended, and can be really challenging. And so, yeah. again, we might see some of those repetitive behaviors because it's open-ended time and the children don't know what to do. So they tend to rely on the things that are repetitive and self-soothing and, and gets the same, it might be a question answer thing, but they get, they're asking the same question over and over and they already know the answer to it. But that may be because it's an unstructured, open-ended time and they have no clue how long it's going to last. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. The work is play and play is work. Yep. What great. There's comfort. There's comfort in yeah. work. There's comfort mm -hmm. in work. So we need to sometimes replicate a school-like schedule for after school huh. because it's soothing and it's organizing and it, they can help, you know, even if it's like playtime and what the playtime might, might entail. Right. And your example, uh, to go back to the young child, you know, sitting and asking for help, but Right. not being heard. I could so easily, and I would do this probably as a parent, but then providers mm -hmm. um, who may not be as familiar with autism, um, thinking, well, of course they're doing that because, you know, they have a vision impairment and, and really putting that toward the vision impairment. Right. But I'm hearing like, no, we, when, when it comes to social, if there's any type of communication and maybe a social, um, 
what am I trying to say? Uh, a, a difficulty around um, that social interaction. Um, yeah. That's when we really need to be looking. Could this be something yeah. more? Well, and the other piece, Stacy, is even if you think about, I mean, there's a lot of visual information that comes around the classroom. So the, the children with vision impairments don't know that there may be three or four kids standing at the teacher's desk or that the teacher is moving towards, you know, the homework side of the board because they're going to, they're getting ready to write homework or something down. So there's all kinds of, of nonverbal cues that the kids with sight are getting on a regular basis. And so we have to look at what the social context is, even with a classroom that, that these children may, that the kids with vision impairments and spectrum disorders may need deliberate instruction about, or how to listen for things um, that are going on. I had one student that um, a child with an autism spectrum disorder, he had labors, congenital amaurosis, very verbal, fairly bright young man. And he used to walk into the classroom and say, almost like, honey, I'm home, you know, <laughs> out. And so what, what we ended up, I encouraged staff to uh, teach him something called read the room. Mm. And so stand at the threshold of the door and listen, because he had great auditory skills. Listen, is the teacher talking? If the teacher's talking, you come in quietly and sit at your seat. If the kids are talking and it's around snack time, it might be snack time. And it's okay for you to come in and be a little louder or you know have a conversation or something like that because it's it's around snack time and that's what's going on kids are talking so you know like read the room can be done auditorily and then mm -hmm. knowing how to enter in a quiet way but the you know he used to do the honey i'm home you know i'm back um that's in so the middle cute. of class yeah oh my goodness. <laughs> I, love it. I would love an example too of um uh, a kiddo you've worked with who where autism is absent, um, like in that situation or in one of the situations you've kind of mentioned, like, mm -hmm. is that something they would do fairly naturally go, you know, go into a room and assess it before maybe. I think um, it depends on, I, or... I think it depends on, on the child, but I think for the most part, the kids would know that um, you, you just come in and sit down. You know, somebody, they could learn just by somebody saying you come in and sit down where an, a child with a spectrum disorder may need deliberate instruction. So I never assume a child knows what to do if I haven't taught them somewhat deliberately. Right. Given okay. some examples and non-examples. You do it this way, you don't do it that way. Mm -hmm. um, even in terms of, um, and I'll give you just another, for instance, this is a Michelle Garcia winner thing. Um, and it's, it has nothing to do with vision, but it has to do with the complexity of the environments that we're going into. So typically we would say, keep an arm's length, you know, body language or, you know, wise, um, you know, personal space. But Barnes and Noble is, you know, is typically thought of as a bookstore, but in fact, it's more than a bookstore. It's a social place because you can have coffee, you know, and chit chat over in the coffee area. And in the magazine area, you can almost be on top of each other because that's the way the magazines are arranged. Mm. But in the, in, the, in the overstuffed chair area, you don't engage in conversation because there's only a single chair and people typically have books, you know, stacked next to them. And that's just a bookstore. <laughs> You know, so like what we do varies that that arm's length doesn't always apply. So how do we help children with vision impairments and spectrum disorders understand how to gauge those different kinds of interactions, how to listen and know, you know, what happens in certain locations under certain circumstances? Right. OK, so even with um, some of those, what would be visual cues to a sighted child? Right. Um, 
a child not receiving those, but maybe picking up on that pretty easily once sure. it's introduced. Um, sure. That wouldn't typically be, that wouldn't make you think autism because they're, they're really kind of picking up on these social communication sure. aspects. Yeah. Um, fairly easily. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I know I'm, I'm putting it very simply and there's lots of sure. complexities there. I don't want to sure. say that I am not capable of diagnosing, but it helps me to right. just maybe kind of understand. Frame it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, Dr. Pollack, as we're kind of coming to the end of our conversation today, is there mm -hmm. anything you really want to get out there for parents and providers of children who have vision impairments and blindness and potentially are, you know, exploring autism as a possible diagnosis? Is there anything we've missed that you really want to put out to our listeners? I would say um, just on, on one, and one point, you know, that just because a child has a vision impairment does not preclude having an autism diagnosis. Right. Um, because I think people much like learning disabilities used to be excluded because in the federal regulations, it would say, well, you can't have a, you know, vision impairment and stuff like that. Well, the vision impairment cannot be the primary reason for the learning disability. Well, the mm -hmm. same thing would be true with an autism spectrum disorder that we don't just because they have a vision impairment does not mean that they can't also have an autism spectrum disorder. So that would be a caution. But then as we've also mentioned, the caution needs to be in terms of not over or under diagnosing children with vision impairments, not rushing to diagnose, but not also avoiding a diagnosis when in fact a cluster of behaviors fits. Um, the social interactions, the difficulties with change, the difficulties with transition, the sensory sensitivities, which did not used to be in the autism criteria that used to kind of just be an afterthought, but it wasn't part of the criteria. It's sensory sensitivities is now part of the criteria for a diagnosis. Um, so that that those would be my biggest, you know, my biggest concerns and my biggest cautions is how not to basically not over or under diagnose um, children with vision impairments with a spectrum disorder. And to uh, when in doubt approach as if um, because those strategies can be really powerful and really effective, the, that controlling language, that presenting in a, a choreographed fashion, you know, respecting the fact that children with vision impairments need, need language exposure and need a lot of hands-on opportunities and exploratory opportunities. Yeah. So. And I know that you are itinerant, but I imagine you don't travel all around the world to... <laughs> help any I, parents who need it. Do. Okay, well, that okay. was going to be my question. So if anyone yep. wants to reach out to you for yeah. some advice or support or yeah. an yeah. evaluation, what, what would well, you? Well, I, I have a website okay. that's theresepoletko.com. And in fact, I have seen one child in Ireland because okay. they, the family um, was looking for somebody and I wrote somebody in the Midwest. There's a, there's an organization, which is MAP, M-A-A-P, and it's an autism and Asperger's group. And I wrote them and I said, you know, I'm really looking for people to collaborate with on autism and vision impairments. If you ever see anybody with with that interest, please feel free to share my contact information. <laughs> and they, somebody, they put it in their newsletter and the psychologist at, at Rush Presbyterian saw it and said, I'm doing autism and hearing impairment. Would you be interested in going to Ireland? I did. <laughs> wow. I've seen children in Missouri. I've seen children in Kentucky. I've seen children in Tennessee. I've seen children in all over New England. Um, so yeah, I do do evaluations on children with vision impairments, but I'm also 
uh, I've also gotten calls from Seattle, you know, clinics and things like that. So I'm happy to, to try to do what I can just to kind of advance the field um, yeah. in terms of teasing things out. My time, I'm, I'm retiring from regular practice, but I'm not retiring from the vision field. So. Oh, wonderful. Um, Cause I was going to say, you, I, you might be hearing from me soon <laughs> offline. So anyway, so yeah. and you do, um, uh, do you still do workshops? I do workshops on an as requested basis. So okay. I, I don't, I don't, you know, advertise. I don't, I don't have a manager that goes out. It's like when people find me, you know, they'll say, would you be interested in doing, and I've done one and two day long workshops because it's a lot of information to get out. And oftentimes, and the way Julia Bowman and I connected, I think was um, she heard that I'd done one on ONH and uh, spectrum disorders out in um, Utah. So mm-hmm. that's how I connected with her, but anyway. That's great. Yeah. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I can't, well, we can't thank you enough for, for being here. And I'm always excited to meet a fellow Tar Heel. I don't know if you consider (laughs) yourself one. You were leaving Chapel Hill as I was entering. Um, But still, I I love meeting anyone from uh, Chapel Hill. So, well, it was, I was like a kid in a candy store at the Teach Clinic and um, feel so blessed to have had the opportunities to work with, with the folks with, um, that work with kids with autism spectrum disorder and adults with autism spectrum disorders. They were way ahead that that program has been in existence over 50 years because parents mm-hmm. advocated for yeah. autism spectrum disorders. It's a special place. Yeah. It is. It really is. Anyway, ladies, thank you so much. Yes. For thank you. Thank you. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.